Hi, and welcome. I'm Steve Martorano, and this is The Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, The Behavioral Corner. Please, hang around a while. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Corner. Hang in with... Uh, with Yours truly, Steve Martorano. What we do here on the corner is that we're, if we're fortunate, somebody interesting comes by and uh, we have a uh, conversation. Behavioral health. So think about that. Uh, the way we behave has an impact, an enormous impact on our uh, emotional, uh, spiritual, uh, physical, uh, psychological well-being. So that's what uh, we are all about when we say we're talking about behavioral health. So stick around. We, we, as always, we ran into somebody really interesting here on the corner. Uh, Liz Spickle is a, a, a renowned uh, writer and columnist in uh, the Philadelphia area, having written for many, many years for all kinds of periodicals from uh, Philadelphia Weekly to Philadelphia Magazine, as well as the paper of record, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Liz joins us because uh, many years ago, she she found her niche in uh, in writing, and it was about her specific battle with the disease that dare not say its name, uh, mental illness. So we're real happy to have Lynn Spickle with us here on the corner. Hi, hi, Liz. Hey, Steve. Good to be here. It's our pleasure. So I, I characterize mental illness as the, the disease that dare not speak its name. Of of all the things that can plague us, from substance abuse to you know organic diseases and everything, mental illness still is up against this notion that. You're better off not talking about having mental issues. Is that your experience? Is that what you still see happening? Absolutely. Um, I think it scares people. So I think a lot of the time what we see as discrimination um, and reaction against people who have mental health problems is because other people who don't have those problems are afraid. I live in Philadelphia, you know, it's, it's a big city, you know, when there's not COVID, I do things like take the bus or the subway and, you know, you just see how people interact with other people who aren't behaving conventionally. And so if there's, let's say there's somebody talking to themselves on the bus or something, you'll notice that nobody sits next to that person, yeah, right. despite the fact that that person might not be doing anything other than just having a conversation with themselves. But it's like there's something about unpredictable behavior and um, behavior that we don't have an, uh, an answer for that really disconcerts people sure. and makes, puts them, makes them ill at ease. Yeah. So I think that's a big factor in the way that people um, react to mental health. Yeah, I agree. You see it all the time. It's almost as though you think you can catch it. Right. 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 Exactly. Let me move away from this because I don't want to be around it. Tell us about your background and your history, but particularly when you first began exhibiting difficulties with your with your mental condition. Talk about that a little bit. You know, I had my issues as kids do growing up. But there was nothing profound that plagued me. Um, I had undiagnosed ADD, and so I always lost my homework. And one time came home without my winter coat. I had lost my winter coat. You know, I was like a very forgetful, dreamy kind of kid. But not I didn't have any um, mood issues or anything. So everything went well, and I had a, like a successful high school career and, you know, got into the college of my choice. And everything seemed to be sort of following a rather boring but 
acceptable path. And then the um, summer after I graduated from high school, I went to the Dominican Republic for a language immersion program. Um, And while I was there, I was raped. And I did not understand it at the time. But what happened to me as a result of the rape was um, I suffered from very severe PTSD. At that time, though, this was in 1986, and PTSD wasn't really even a part of our uh, lingo at that time, you know, so there were things that they would call um, rape trauma syndrome and stuff like that, but it was really poorly understood compared to now. So um, I started having hallucinations and um, delusions and fears, and it should be said, I was a 17-year-old who was raped by somebody in the house where I lived, who I had to continue living with until I came back to the States maybe a month later. So some of my feeling fearful, that wasn't irrational, but I definitely had a, a sort of what I now understand as a pretty typical trauma response. So that was the first time that I ever felt like my brain or my mind was betraying me. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to my boyfriend at the time, I would have nightmares and wake up screaming. And I remember saying to him, poor kid, he was 16, you know, do you think I'm crazy? And I didn't even really know what crazy meant, but I just sort of thought that that's where I was headed. And he said, maybe. And, uh, and I just thought, oh no, you know, but it was so poor. I just, I didn't have any experience with it. And so I went to graduate school after that and the following 10 years, basically, were, um, I mean, I did get my master's degree, but I basically was um, in and out of hospitals on dozens of medications, got um, so many diagnoses, mental health diagnoses. I was in, you know, there were suicide attempts, there were shock treatments, you know, had to drop out of school, went on disability, lost jobs. It was a nightmare of unending misery of clinical depression and psychosis and um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder, then schizoaffective disorder, then back to bipolar disorder, then obsessive compulsive disorder, then general anxiety disorder. It was just, you know, it was relentless trying to find the right medications, the right doctors. So it really was a harrowing 10 years of severe mental illness that took me out of my life and out of society in a lot of ways. Yeah. Did you report the rape at the time? I did not because I believed as so many, as so many, I shouldn't say female, but so many victims do. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that it was my fault, you know? So I remember that my little boyfriend at the time wanted to tell somebody, he said, we have to tell the teachers and I said, no, 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 we can't tell anybody. We can't tell anybody. You know, I, I just, I was completely ashamed. And I just thought I obviously did something to bring this upon myself. It, it's worth, yeah. it's worth remembering how we have ways to go, but the difference between how rape was dealt with both by the victim and by society at large in 1986 is vastly different than it is today. This is a traumatic event, you know, among the most traumatic events for for any young person. Do you think it created the illness in you or do you think it triggered something uh, that might have occurred uh, anyway? Um, That's a very good question. And it's one that 
I think is unanswerable to a large extent. For a long time, you know, there was sort of a consensus among my doctors that the trauma triggered a biological predisposition to bipolar disorder. Um, however, that was sort of reversed years later when the bipolar disorder diagnosis was sort of taken away. And after my years of identifying myself as bipolar, you know, but then saying like, you know, actually on second thought, this doesn't really look like bipolar. You know, at this point, what I sort of understand is I certainly did have attention deficit disorder. I certainly did have PTSD. I certainly had personality issues that were formed by, there was some childhood trauma um, and certainly, you know, things that we, we become people, right? Complicated people with, um, it's just impossible to tell. Yeah. I, I, you know, it also doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it sort of doesn't matter. I mean, I, I took a little bit of comfort for a while in this notion that, you know, oh, I would have had it anyway. Right. But then in more recent years, I thought, you know what? I don't think so. I think if I had not been raped, um, I don't know that I would have gone down that road. Yeah. But so. Yeah. You know, uh, Liz Spickle is our, our guest. She's a writer and she's written extensively on her struggles with uh, mental illness. And uh, she's done a great service in doing that because she's been so frank and forthcoming as she is with us right now. Liz, let me ask you about this, some of these diagnoses that you get over the years. Do you think sometimes in being in front of a therapist or a medical professional with the problems you were exhibiting, that they look for a label for it so that they then can treat the label? I guess what I'm asking you, did you believe at the time and do you believe now that you are you were bipolar? So I think what happens, um, all medicine is, is imprecise um, to a certain extent, but you know, psychiatric illnesses are perhaps even more so because if you're diabetic, it's pretty obvious from a blood test what your insulin resistance is and that kind of thing. So we don't have blood tests. We don't have strong markers yet, though I think we're getting closer um, for severe mental illnesses and even less so for personality disorders or for sort of lesser mental illnesses or mental conditions. Um, it is a complicated diagnostically. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happened is that there are things that sort of trend and that get it come into vogue and go out of vogue. And a lot of it gets determined by what's in the diagnostic and statistical manual, the DSM, yep. um, what insurance companies require, uh, what big pharma markets and how they market things and how doctors embrace the marketing. There are all of these forces that go into, into sort of making an illness. So, so for example, in, you know, there's a history of the illness schizophrenia, which was seen as like a white disease early on in the 60s when there was a lot of the late 50s, 60s, there's a lot of uh, civil rights activity. So schizophrenia be being marketed by medical companies and also changing in the, in the DSM to be more of a black disease because it was like they were sort of applying these words to address a behavior, unruly behavior, yep, yep. resistant behavior. So all of these social forces come into play, like what, you know, the way that homosexuality used to be in the DSM as, a, as an illness. So all of these things have an impact. And bipolar disorder in the 1990s, when I was interacting the most frequently with the mental health system, was very, very much in vogue as a diagnosis. It was like the diagnosis du jour, hmm. and there were 
there was a profusion of medications that were created and marketed, despite the fact that sometimes they were just reformulations of the same thing, but that were marketed to bipolar disorder specifically. So when I think about when I first got that diagnosis, I think the doctor who was giving it to me was very much influenced by what was happening in the culture at large and in his field. Um, I also think I was experiencing symptoms of a mood disorder, so it wasn't unusual as a diagnosis. And at the time, it felt very right to me, um, certainly, and I believed it to be the correct diagnosis for many years, although I see now that I think it probably was not the right diagnosis. Yeah, yeah you um, know, anybody who's followed this uh, with, with, a, with a little bit of curiosity can remember everything you just described about the changing attitudes and the voguishness of making making everything uh, a pathology. I remember a book called The Myth of Mental Illness from the uh, middle 60s where uh, – you know, the proposition was there's no such thing as mental illness. There's just people that don't conform, and maybe we should empty out all of the uh, institutions and, and just let them function. There's some crazy stuff going on. So to swing it back to how someone like yourself who struggles with mental illness tries to get their life back together, and you're in the hands of these professionals. I mean, you're there to try to get help, and then they describe what's happening to you, and then automatically there's some medicine that you should be taking. What kind of meds have you been on over, over your uh, – your, your struggles? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I have been on so many, um, but there are people who identify as they call themselves psychiatric survivors and they feel like the, um, the mental health system failed them and, you know, that they were taken advantage of in some ways. I don't feel that way. I feel like I was interacting with a lot of really good practitioners who meant well and who wanted to do the best by me. And I had very recalcitrant symptoms um, that were unfortunately sometimes exacerbated by the medicines that I took. And so that, so then that confuses the picture too, you know, so you, you start taking these medications that affect your mood, your mood changes, you exhibit more symptoms and the symptoms are sort of chalked up to like, oh, well, it's the illness as opposed to the medication. So I've been on every kind of mood stabilizer, every kind of seizure medication, every antipsychotic, mm. every antidepressant. I mean, there isn't really a psychiatric medication on the market that I haven't been on, except for some in, that are more recent. So I'm always pleased when I hear about one that I haven't been on because I think like, huh. Well, at least I'm not there yet. You're right. I am off of um, almost all of those medications now. So, um, and and I've been doing much better. For me, um, being on medications for me that work are, I take something for um, ADD and I take like a tiny little bit of a benzo at night for sleep. But that's it. And that's been the case for a few years now. So I, getting for me, I was on um, antipsychotics for almost 20 years. And uh, that's, it's really, really hard on your body. Yeah. Yeah, Liz Bigelow, a writer, is with us uh, talking about her uh, long struggle with uh, mental illness and the various hoops one must jump through 
uh, we really appreciate this. She's she's doing a, she does a great job of demystifying this entire process. We're on the behavioral corner. I hope you're hanging with us. Studies show that 2020 has negatively affected the mental health of millions of Americans. That is why at Retreat, we work to provide comprehensive mental health programming through our Synergy Health programs. To learn more about Synergy and the comprehensive mental and behavioral health services we offer, call us today at 855-802-6600. What was the impact on your family and you know, how bad was it for them? For the worst of the illness, um, I was living in Texas and studying comparative literature, which I always say is a combination that could make anybody crazy. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, at a certain point, I eventually had to come home to Philadelphia for treatment. And at that point, my parents had to, I mean, I was not able to take care of myself. And, um, you know, my parents just had to switch into a whole... It's like they had an adult daughter who was off doing graduate school. They were empty nesters, you know, and then all of a sudden they have a daughter who's back and who needs like round the clock care and supervision and intervention. And it was just, I don't know that my mother slept for seven years. I mean, it was exhausting for them. Mm-hmm. You know, they did everything that they could do. They were extremely supportive of me always. You know, my mother always says now that she feels lucky because I was relatively compliant as a patient. Like if a doctor, I had like a little bit of a worship thing about doctors. And so if a doctor told me to do something, I, I, I did it. I was never resistant, you know, to trying medications or interventions. I mean, she never had to really fight with me. Yeah. Were you ever uh, institutionalized involuntarily? Not involuntarily, No. And I always either voluntarily admit myself or come around to the idea that, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead with this and sign what needs to be signed. So I was really quite tractable always. <laughs> I always have to. Well, it, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword there that if you're very good at being, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say this, very good at being mentally ill, you're liable to be mentally ill longer than you have to be. Right. And I, I think I was lucky to ultimately get a doctor um, who I still see now who had a, a different philosophy. So he's a psychiatrist, but his philosophy is like, we need to do the work of psychotherapy. So that's a huge chunk of it. And also we need to forget about labels, which is a very unusual position for a psychiatrist to take. But he felt that sort of the DSM all of the labeling and the insurance codes, and it has all gone crazy. So, you know, his attitude was, just tell me what's going on. Tell me what your symptoms are. We'll address the symptoms so you can have a better life, you know, and let's not get caught up in the name of the illness. Because mm-hmm. once you get caught up in that, then that, that really does spiral. Yeah, and that's what you're chasing then, that thing, rather than what you mentioned is the goal to get a balanced life, a functioning and relatively happy life. When did you start to have confidence that you were managing your mental illness? Um, that's a good question. I would say in the 2000s, in the early, early, say the early-ish aughts, um, I felt like I had really started to to manage things better. Mm-hmm. Were you ever violent? Yes, I was. Um, 
I was violent to, um, it's hard to talk about cause I feel guilty about it, but I was violent to people in my life, like my ex-husband and, um, I was violent to my pets, which I feel worse about than the ex-husband to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, and I was, um, violent, um, sort of more generally to some property, uh-huh. I did some property damage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll tell you why I asked because recently you had a piece in Philadelphia. We had another tragic example of police responding to a uh, domestic disturbance where where there there was understood to be some underlying mental issues. They were uh, felt they were being threatened by a guy with a knife, and uh, the result is another uh, shooting. Um, uh, to death of the fellow with the knife who had mental health issues. And I know you wrote an article saying that you have been in situations, maybe not exactly comparable to that, where you were looked at as a physical threat um, and you didn't get shot 14 times. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're not trying to make the point about, you know, any, any, uh, it's not all shootings are the same, but there's a situation where police are now more often than not being called upon to react in a situation where a mental health expert is needed. Is any work being done that you're aware of to make that a more seamless proposition? I'm not aware of work being done. I'm aware of talk. (laughs) Um, But, you know, this has been an issue basically, you know, since the institutionalization um, happened the whole idea behind, and which was a good thing, and the whole idea behind deinstitutionalization was if you take people out of these institutions and you make them less reliant on that system, they will excel in many cases. But in the cases where they don't, we're going to offer them community-based supports that are better for them um, because they're not being, you're not warehousing people you know, you're supporting them in the community. This is all like a wonderful idea and it has been very successful in many ways. And I think has really like returned a lot of the autonomy to people who in past decades would have just been shut away forever. Um, Unfortunately though, our society depending on lots of different things doesn't always invest sufficiently in community resources. So, you know, community mental health and um, education pertaining to mental health and trauma-informed services and all of this stuff that we talk about as being like, well, this is what's good to support people who have chronic mental health issues. Um, There's not always money for that that's invested. And so what you end up with is a situation where the police are responding to a lot of calls and concerns that really they're not trained for. I mean, law enforcement, they have minimal training. Um, And even people who are highly trained in crisis intervention from a mental health perspective, you know, it's a very challenging um, situation. So now there was a time when it was very much in vogue for Everybody was talking about Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee, because Memphis did a wonderful job of instituting this crisis intervention team in their police department. And so then everybody talked about the Memphis model, and they wanted to sort of go along with the Memphis model. 
Um, Philadelphia, you know, also at a certain point adopted a variation of the Memphis model. Crisis intervention officers didn't make it mandatory. There were a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of like mixed reviews with incorporating this into traditional law enforcement training. But there are programs now that we see are very innovative that are sort of like CIT, but are very innovative and that um, can be used you know, to, to where you can have people who respond to a uh, mental health emergency who are not law enforcement. Yeah. They're people who know how to handle it. And there are other sort of safety valves, you know, because it's not really fair to have people with mental health problems interacting with law enforcement and assuming that that is going to go well. Yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. It's not. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Liz, um, you're managing this uh, situation. Uh, mental illness is something that uh, folks can live with and manage. I don't. I don't. There's no vaccine for that, of course. No, nevertheless, having said that, are there situations and uh, things you have to avoid in order to keep an even keel? Um, not so much. I mean, at the age that I'm at now, I'm I'm in my early fifties, and um, there is some evidence to suggest that. Uh, these types of illnesses do abate somewhat in later years. Um, certainly that's been the case for me. I really don't experience mm, symptoms very often at all. If anything, I experience fear that I will, but I, you know, I've been really stable for many years now and haven't been hospitalized for, I mean, it might be 20 years now since I've been hospitalized. So, uh, for mental illness. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that like any person who has a history of trauma, you know, I'm not going to watch The Accused tomorrow, you know, movie about rape. Mm-hmm. But um, but say I have a very demanding job as an editorial director of a media company. And like, it, it, I, I, you know, what I what I want people to understand is it, whatever diagnosis you get, whatever label it is, whatever symptoms you have, it's not forever. You know, you can live with things and manage them and have a successful life. Liz, thanks so much for your time and for your work. It's really, I'm telling you, it's it, it's great. This this is a curtain that needs to be fully pulled back so that people can confront it. It's not a small problem. Uh, it's not, not getting any smaller either. So uh, thanks so much for your time here with us on The Corner. And, uh, you know, stay happy. Thank you. You too. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On the Behavioral Corner.